Welcome, and thank you for joining this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. The Association's Digital Digest series features a range of podcasts and videos focused on the latest resuscitation science topics. Good morning. So I'm Dr. Alexis Topchin. I am a pediatric intensivist from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I'm here today with Dr. Ryan Morgan, who's uh, an assistant professor of anesthesia, uh, critical care, and pediatrics from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. And today we're going to have the opportunity to talk with him about advanced topics in pediatric resuscitation. So Dr. Morgan, why would we use physiology to guide CPR? Thank you. So this is a topic that I'm particularly interested in um, and something we've been studying at CHOP for quite a while. Our current AHA resuscitation guidelines, as you know, provide us with a teachable framework for the masses to teach us how to do CPR. One area that it really leaves open is term in the metrics by which we measure what we do. So we really are measuring what we're doing as providers rather than what our patients are actually seeing. So how deep are you pushing? Are you pushing fast enough? Are your hands in the right place? When what may be more optimal is actually measuring what our patients are seeing. So looking at the physiologic output and how that affects them. Makes a lot of sense. How is this different from our standard practice? So I think, in essence, we shouldn't think of it as being different from our standard practice, but rather something that can potentially augment our standard practice and make it better. So perhaps we should be following all of our guidelines and aiming for the proven chest compression rates and depths that work, the epinephrine dosing that we know works, but then getting feedback from our patient to say, maybe we should reconsider whether or not we are actually pushing deep enough. Maybe we should think about whether or not it actually is time for another vasopressor dose now, and then maybe reconsidering the H's and T's that we thought we'd already addressed over the course of the resuscitation. So when you talk about physiologic directed CPR, what types of methods or tools or monitoring techniques do you need to do that? So the two longest standing physiologic tools that we've known about really since the 1980s for monitoring the quality of CPR are entitled carbon dioxide um, and blood pressure monitoring. Um, And both of these have actually been studied pretty extensively um, in the AHA in both the 2013 consensus statement and in our 2010 and 2015 guidelines did advocate for measuring these, though we don't have great answers on exactly what we should be targeting quite yet. So what's different about pediatric resuscitation when it comes to physiologic directed CPR? So I think a lot of what we're thinking about when it comes to physiology and measuring it and targeting it during CPR applies to both children and adults. One of the reasons that we in pediatrics are particularly interested in it is because children tend to be a little bit more varied in terms of their physiology coming into an arrest. So most adults have cardiac arrest as a result of coronary artery disease. Children are critically ill at the time of their arrest when they have a cardiac arrest in the hospital. Um, They have respiratory failure, they have shock, they have various other processes and diagnoses that are impacting their physiology and actually paying attention to that physiology and being able to think about it and target it could validate why a one-size-fits-all approach is Mm -hmm. particularly not suitable for children. So you mentioned that end-tidal CO2 and invasive blood pressure monitoring are two of the tools that you use to guide CPR. I was hoping to dig into that a little bit more. Can you tell us a little bit about the background for end-tidal CO2 use during CPR? Absolutely. So end-tidal CO2, we've known about its ability to monitor CPR since the 1980s. And essentially, the physiologic rationale for it is that one of the main purposes of CPR is to provide cardiac output during a cardiac arrest. So as you push on the chest, the heart is ejecting blood, 
that blood, which carries CO2, is going to the lungs, and you can measure the exhaled CO2 in the form of end-tidal CO2. We in critical care who use end-tidal CO2 monitoring a lot usually think about it as a means of telling us how much carbon dioxide is in the lungs, but it's also dependent on pulmonary blood flow. Mm -hmm. And in the state of CPR, where pulmonary blood flow is limited, the end-tidal CO2 values are directly related to the pulmonary blood flow, and therefore they are an indirect marker of cardiac output. So seeing what your end-tidal CO2 is gives you an idea of what your cardiac output is, and therefore an idea of how good you're doing in terms of your resuscitation, in terms of circulating blood to the body. So I think that's interesting. I guess the question is, are there actual end-tidal CO2 thresholds then that you monitor during CPR metrics that you're targeting? So the short answer is we don't quite know. A longer answer is that we know that particularly low values of end-tidal CO2 that are persistent through resuscitation are predictive of poor outcomes. So that translates to pretty consistently across studies, we've seen that any values that are persistently below 10 are not usually compatible with survival. Between the 10 and 20 range is a little bit of an intermediate place, and 20 tends to have a better prognosis, though there's no guarantee. So in our institution, we tend to think about targeting an end CO2 greater than 20, though we know that there are some limitations to doing that. And is that just for return of spontaneous circulation, or is that for survival to discharge? So most of the studies that have been done in this have to do with return of spontaneous circulation, um, but there's a lot of ongoing work to look at longer-term outcomes in end CO2, and there are some studies that suggest that it is linked to meaningful survival outcomes. So there are limitations to end-tidal CO2 for guiding CPR. Um, one in particular to the pediatric population is that most of our patients have respiratory failure prior to cardiac arrest. A lot of our patients have hypercarbic respiratory failure as an etiology of their arrest. You can imagine at that time there's a high level of CO2 in the alveoli in the lung. This, when you initially initiate CPR, you're going to see higher end-tidal CO2 mm. values then perhaps is entirely representative of the quality of CPR that we're providing. So that can falsely reassure us that we're providing high quality CPR or about the prognosis of our patient enter arrest. The other thing we often think about from a physiologic standpoint is that vasopressors affect end-tidal CO2. So by causing vasoconstriction in, in the lungs directly, epinephrine in particular can cause alterations in end-tidal CO2 values that can impact how we're able to interpret that data. I don't think that means you need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I think you need to consider the overall patient when looking at these values and not just the value in and of itself. Great. Thank you. So let's move on to blood pressure. Can you give us a little bit of the rationale about using blood pressure to guide CPR? So the rationale for using blood pressure to guide CPR really comes from coronary perfusion pressure and its importance to CPR and to survivability from cardiac arrest. So coronary perfusion pressure is the driving force for myocardial blood flow, both during normal states and during cardiac arrest. Um, It's the difference between the blood pressure in the aorta during diastole and in the right atrium. And for a long time, we've known that higher values of coronary perfusion pressure during CPR are associated with higher rates of survival. This has been shown in patients, and it's been shown in a lot of extensive animal models over the last 30 years or so. Measuring coronary perfusion pressure itself can be difficult, but diastolic blood pressure, which is the upstream pressure for coronary perfusion Mm -hmm. pressure, is something that we can more easily measure. In some recent work from the CAPCOR network that our boss, Bob Berg, led, we saw that actual 
thresholds of diastolic blood pressure were associated with survival to hospital discharge. And I think that was really promising work that can tell us that there are some thresholds out there that we can begin to think about, begin to study prospectively. In our work in the lab at CHOP that we've been doing for a long time, we prospectively, proactively target a coronary perfusion pressure and systolic blood pressures and have shown that by doing that, as opposed to standard depth-guided CPR, we're able to improve outcomes as well. So it sounds like physiologic blood pressure-guided CPR would require invasive arterial catheter. It sounds like that might be challenging applying to only a limited number of patients. Is that correct? That's a great question. So we're not advocating for doing this with cuff pressures, which I don't think have ever really been validated as accurately showing blood pressures Mm -hmm. during CPR. So more than 90% of our patients who are having in-hospital cardiac arrest are having them in a monitored setting. They're having them in an ICU where we have the ability to use arterial catheters. And in some work that was done several years ago, we saw that actually close to 50% of the I- those ICU patients actually had an arterial catheter in at the time of arrest. So this really is actually already applying to, without going out and putting more arterial catheters in mm-hmm. for the purpose of this, potentially applying to a good chunk of our population in pediatrics. That's a lot of patients, actually. Um, I didn't expect that. Tell me, what are the thresholds or are there thresholds that clinicians can use to sort of guide their CPR during that time? So in the study, it was called the PICU CPR study that was led by Bob Berg in the Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Network. This was published last year in circulation. They looked at both what the optimal threshold was for predicting survival, and that ended up being 34 millimeters of mercury. They also went and looked at dichotomous yes-no, did you meet an a priori Mm -hmm. threshold, which they had decided off the bat was 25 for infants and 30 for children over the age of one. That seems to be consistent with kind of what we've seen in multiple observational studies and consistent with what we're seeing in the lab, but it's a small number of patients, so I don't think we really have Mm -hmm. a clear answer yet. We're looking forward to prospectively studying this. We're comparing a couple of different blood pressure strategies in the lab now, and I think we'll have that answer over the course of the next several years. So I guess currently, how should clinicians change their practice? You've talked about end-tidal CO2. You've talked about blood pressure-guided CPR. What should we do at the bedside? So I think the hopes is that eventually we can have actual algorithms that we study prospectively, that we publish with our set of guidelines, where you can say, okay, if you're below this threshold, do this first, do this next. We're not quite there yet. I think the answer is think about it and do something, which is a frustrating answer. But if you're seeing end-tidal CO2 that's really low, if you're seeing blood pressures that are really low, lower than you would expect, that reevaluate kind of what you're doing and what you're thinking about. So maybe the chest compressions that you're providing that you thought were deep enough aren't quite deep enough. Maybe it is time for that next dose of vasopressor. Maybe you should rethink about your H's and T's that could be impacting your Mm -hmm. hemodynamics or your end-tidal that you thought you had already addressed. It sounds like this gives us something new to focus on and, and sort of think about during resuscitation, which I think is sounds promising. What do you see on the horizon for the future of uh, CPR? So I think on the horizon for this topic, some of the things I referred to, so ongoing lab work by our group, by others, observational studies that are hopefully going to give us a little bit more data on what these thresholds might be, and hopefully a little bit more validation on these things that I'm saying actually matter. And then we'll start to study these things prospectively and really see if we can 
give people an answer for what you can target and how that can impact outcomes. Beyond end tidal and beyond blood pressure, there's other modalities to measure your patient's physiology. So you're involved in some work on looking at NEARS, near-infrared spectroscopy, during cardiac arrest, and to try to get an idea of what's happening in the brain. And there's other novel therapies, novel modalities out there as well to measure what's actually happening in the brain, which our neurologic outcome after CPR is eventually what we're all really interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those are really exciting too. That's great. Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about advanced topics in pediatric resuscitation. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed learning more about entitled CO2 and blood pressure guided CPR. Thank you for joining us and listening to us today. We hope you've learned as much as I have. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. For transcripts of this podcast and more information about resuscitation science, please visit cpr.heart.org or engage with us via social media using hashtag ECC Digital Digest.